The Story of Curtius Rufus Adramitum, Africa Proconsularis, 23 CE The large villa that would house the quaestor and his staff sat amid a grove of palm trees overlooking the sea. The quaestor himself had a bedroom with a view out over the beach. The junior staff were housed facing the street, but the rooms were clean and pleasant enough. The courtyard was raised a little, so that as you walked along the colonnade you could just about see the sand and the sea. Curtius Rufus was lodged in a room next to Nasidianus, at which his heart sank a bit. The whole time they were all on board ship making their way here, he had found Nasidianus standing on corners of the deck or huddled under a sail, gossiping with the captain, the sailors, even the slaves, if he could find no one else. And he was mostly gossiping about Curtius Rufus. One particularly miserable evening, when the wind was up and the sea was choppy, Curtius Rufus had come out on deck and stood near the prow, hoping the feel of the breeze in his face would chase away the sickness in the pit of his stomach. He was running his hands through his thick, dark hair, enjoying the feel of the sea spray on his neck, when he heard a voice carried across the deck by the wind. "'Look at that!' the unmistakably nasal voice of Nasidianus was saying. "'Rufus, he claims to be, after his father. You know I knew his father. The man had a head of rich red hair to rival a Celt. You don't see that on him, do you?' "'Well, that's true,' said another, more conciliatory voice that Rufus didn't recognise. "'But I've always noticed that red hair tends to go with rather pale skin, "'so it's hardly surprising. "'Curtius Rufus's skin is much darker than any redhead I've ever seen.' "'Exactly!' exclaimed Nasidianus triumphantly. "'Look at the colour of his skin! "'The man's so dark he's practically an Ethiopian!' "'What are you getting at, Nasidianus?' said the second voice wearily. "'There are rumours,' said Nasidianus darkly. He left a pause, but when his companion declined to show any interest in knowing what they were, he carried on anyway. "'His mother, she died a long time ago. She was a rebellious sort. Never got on well with the father, who was already old by the time they were married.' "'So I suppose you are suggesting the mother had an affair?' Not just any affair, said Nasidianus. The rumour is that Rufus' natural father was a gladiator. The ship lurched and Nasidianus' companion suggested they return to their cabins, but Nasidianus was in full flow and not to be stopped. The mother used to hang around the gladiator's barracks, they say. There was one slave in particular, an Ethiopian, that she was apparently very fond of. After Rufus was born, she used to take him as an infant to the games and hold him aloft whenever this man was fighting, so that he could see the child. Really, Nasidianus, said the other man, this does not sound very likely. Why would Curtius Rufus Senior have raised the child if the wife was as blatant as all that? Rufus kept his gaze firmly out to sea, but he could almost feel Nasidianus shrug in response before carrying on. The man had no other heir, he said. I suppose he thought he might as well raise his wife's bastard child as anyone else. Why adopt when she'd presented him with a potential heir right there? He was never very interested in women, anyway. Mother died giving birth to a second, the baby didn't survive either, and Rufus Senior died not long after that, so Rufus over there was raised by his maternal aunt and uncle. But I suppose they cared more that he was the mother's son than the father's. Nasidianus' companion finally persuaded him back inside, 
but Rufus stayed at the deck, blinking back tears hidden by the rain and the shadows. He didn't know why he let it upset him. He'd heard all these rumours before, many times. From the other boys at school, from his cousins, from his aunt's friends when they thought she was out of earshot. His aunt and uncle had always brushed the rumours aside and told him to pay them no mind, but that was a lot easier for them to do than for him. Any time he went anywhere with his family, his darker skin tone and thick dark hair was noticed. Sometimes it was a flattering notice. More than one young woman had batted her eyelids at him and smiled slyly, clearly finding his appearance pleasing. But more often it was narrowed eyes and sneering looks. Rufus had found himself shying away from his family, however much he loved them, for as a man alone he attracted no special interest. It was among his pale, freckled relatives that the looks and whispers started. When he had got this job, posted with the Quaestor staff to Africa Proconsularis, he had been excited. He would be miles away from his family, on another continent, and he could finally leave the rumours and the dirty looks behind. But his hopes had been dashed when Nasidianus boarded the boat. The man was a mean-spirited, jealous gossip, and more to the point, he had known the Curtius family for years and was well aware of Rufus' history. Dinner on their first night in Adramitum was no better. Rufus could hear Nasidianus' grating nasal voice drifting across the dining room, repeating the old rumours and accusations, pointing at his skin and hair. No one said anything to him directly, and Nasidianus' listeners mostly seemed to shuffle their feet and hands uncomfortably and try to change the subject, but for Rufus it was inescapable. He lay in bed that night, wondering if he should quit this job altogether, abandon his ambitions for a political career, and just go home to live quietly marry some pretty but impoverished girl who would take him despite the scandal, and work on his history books. After all, he told himself aloud, it's not as if a political career means what it used to anyway. The emperor and his staff do all the real work. But as he drifted off to sleep, he could hear his uncle's voice in his head, and he dreamed that the man's face appeared before him, telling him as he had so many times, You are a member of the Curtii. You belong to a great historic family. You must do them proud and serve your fatherland. But I'm not, he heard himself protesting weakly. I'm not a real courteous. Perhaps I should go be a gladiator. That's my heritage. You are a courteous, he heard his uncle say, dreaming himself back to his childhood hearth and seeing his uncle standing over him. When you were nine days old, your father picked you up and carried you around the hearth fire, just like so. And here his uncle used to pick up one of the dogs to demonstrate and accepted you into his family, the Curtius family. And then his uncle leaned over and whispered in his ear, and he could clearly see the colour of your skin when he did it. Although he had had a somewhat restless night, Rufus found himself feeling distracted and fidgety all the next day too. He was still unsure whether to stick it out or give it all up and go home. Midday came and the quaestor announced that everyone would be retiring for a few hours. It was far too hot to work through the midday heat in this part of the world. Everyone else retired to their rooms, but Rufus was still unable to relax. Instead, he took himself off to the courtyard to wander around the colonnade. There was a small water fountain and a garden of green trees and bushes in the open space at the centre of the villa. A little bronze statue of a drunk Hercules was eternally peeing fresh clean water into a small pool. 
The ground was tiled in bright reds and blues, while the brickwork was painted in a mixture of blue and white. Birds sang, and a light breeze blew off the sea as Rufus paced the colonnade. Even so close to the water, there was a dryness to the air that was very pleasant, and a sweet smell. Although not foolish enough to sit out in the sun, Rufus found that he liked the heat. It felt comforting somehow, like the air was wrapping itself around him to protect him. Rufus reached the section with that tiny view of the sea and started along it to continue his walk. But the air before him shimmered and suddenly he found his way was blocked. A woman, a huge woman, stood before him, the top of her head reaching the ceiling. Her skin was dark, far darker than his, and her lips full. She had a broad chest and a flat stomach with slender legs and solid feet. Her black hair was twisted into dreads and she wore a rich robe in oranges, reds and yellows. She was the most beautiful woman Rufus had ever seen. I have heard of men seeing strange things in the desert, said Rufus, almost to himself, but never in the courtyard. He felt his forehead anxiously, thinking that perhaps he should have gone to lie down after all. I am no illusion of the desert, Quintus Curtius Rufus, said the woman, and her voice was rich and deep. I am an African beacon light, come to foretell your future. I don't understand, wavered Rufus. The woman reached forward and took his chin in her huge hand, forcing him to look up at her. You are home, Curtius Rufus, she said. This is where you are meant to be. Stay here, work hard, and you will do well. Well, stammered Rufus, wondering if the woman could be a bit more precise about this. As luck would have it, she could. Yes, well. You will serve three emperors, and while so many others around you fall, you will remain tall. You will serve Rome across the empire all the way to Germania. You will be a general and a consul. And then one day you will return here as proconsul to govern the whole province. And here, in your ancestral homeland, this is where you will die. She let him go, the air shimmered once more, and she seemed to blow away on the sea breeze, leaving Rufus stunned and shaking. He sat down hard on the low garden wall and put his head in his hands. Her words about his ancestral homeland had shaken him more than he liked to admit. All his life he had defended his mother against the rumours and the gossip, had told himself that he just tanned really easily. Now, the idea that his natural father might really be a gladiator, a slave, was not a comfortable nor a happy one. But he found he could pull himself together by focusing on the other part of the message. He would be a politician, a successful one. He would have a good career, would even become consul, something no member of the Curtius family had achieved for 500 years. He would survive the imperial court, would survive imperial service, and die only once he had returned to this province as proconsul. Rufus stood up with renewed energy, and despite the heat, found himself running down to the beach and hurling a stone defiantly into the sea as if to say, Here I am. I'm staying here. Rome, 25 CE Pleased to meet you, young man. And what is it that you do? The emperor did not look at all the way Rufus had imagined him. He had imagined the unhappy and reluctant emperor to be a grim and unpleasant man. 
lurid stories were already starting to circulate about what the 66-year-old got up to during his holidays to Campania, which became longer and longer every year. He was flanked by Sejanus, officially commander of the Praetorian Guard, unofficially the man running the empire. Sejanus' wide-set eyes and long nose stared down at Rufus Nasidianus and their fellow young, hopeful, aspiring politicians with disdain. Tiberius, however, seemed quite pleasant in person. He looked tired and a bit distracted, and an undercurrent of deep unhappiness flowed underneath his polite smile, threatening to burst forth if given a chance. He spent several minutes talking with each young man, and was at least skilled at pretending genuine interest in what they had to say. "'I was on the junior staff of the Quaestor, sir,' said Rufus. "'I hope to stand for the Quaestorship myself in the next few years.' He heard Nasidianus snort. "'You are ambitious, then,' said the Emperor. "'A political career is not all it's cracked up to be, you know.' Rufus looked down. "'No Curtius has held the consulship in five hundred years,' he said, "'and I would like to break that trend. "'But I have other interests as well,' he added defensively. "'I've been working on a history of Alexander the Great.' "'Really?' Tiberius seemed to perk up at this. What is it that interests you about Alexander? I suppose, said Rufus hesitantly, having never really thought about it in depth, I suppose it is just that he did so much in so short a time, and then died having changed the world. Hmm, yes, said Tiberius. He was fortunate. He died young. The emperor seemed to drift off into some private daydream until Sejanus pointedly cleared his throat over the old man's head. Well, anyway, said Tiberius, shaking himself, there is no reason to give up on your ambitions just yet, young man, if politics is really what you want. Excuse me, sir, piped up Nasidianus from the other side of the room. The emperor looked up sharply. The men on either side of Nasidianus shrank as far away from him as they could without getting up and walking away. Yes? "'Surely the writing of history would be far more suitable for someone like Rufus, sir,' sneered Nasidianus. "'I know that your nephew Claudius enjoys it very much, and pursues it instead of a political career.' "'My nephew is entirely unsuited to a political career,' said Tiberius sharply. "'He cannot stand properly, cannot speak properly, and cannot move properly. "'Looking at Curtius Rufus here, I see no such problems.' "'But, sir,' persisted Nasidianus, as the others moved even further away from him, "'surely this man cannot represent the ancient family of the Curtii in the Senate. "'After all, sir, you must have heard the rumours.' "'There was a hush across the room. "'Sejanus drew himself up even taller and narrowed his eyes at Nasidianus. "'Tiberius stood up slowly. "'He walked first around Rufus, eyeing him up and down, watching him. Rufus stood completely still and kept his eyes ahead, willing himself not to break. Then Tiberius walked over to Nasidianus and walked around him too, once, twice. Then he motioned to Sejanus, who motioned to a guard, who came over and walked Nasidianus out of the room. "'Let all here understand this clearly,' he said. "'I regard Curtius Rufus as his own father.' and that is all anyone shall have to say on the matter. Rufus sighed out his relief as the Emperor motioned for him to move aside and make way for the next man. He could see the corners of Sejanus' mouth turning up just a little into a smile. 
The other young men in the room nodded silently, but enthusiastically. Carthage, 58 CE Curtius Rufus stood once more near the prow of the ship as it approached the harbour at Carthage. He had not returned to Africa Proconsularis since he had left with Nasidianus and the Quaestor and all the other junior staff more than 30 years ago. He suppressed a tiny, mean-spirited smile at the thought of Nasidianus. The man had faded into obscurity after their meeting with Tiberius, and Rufus had not seen or even thought of him in years. Tiberius had retired not long after their meeting, but Rufus had never forgotten his kindness, and nor, he suspected, had anyone else, at least anyone still alive, who remembered that meeting. Sejanus had been given the position of consul, the highest position in Rome besides emperor, but that same year had been accused of treason and executed. Trials for treason became as common as a weekly fruit market, and many of the other young men Rufus had grown up with were killed. And then even more were executed under Tiberius' successor, Gaius Caligula, for a variety of reasons, some more sane and logical than others. Rufus had survived, though, disappearing to bury himself in his history of Alexander whenever things seemed to be getting too heated. Throughout it all, he had remembered the words of the African spirit, that he would become consul and that eventually he would return to Africa. If he were executed for treason or for criticising one of Caligula's theatrical shows, as others had been, he would never return to Africa. So he kept his head down and wrote his book, trusting that if he did so, things would work out somehow. And then the miracle happened. Tiberius' lame, stammering nephew, Claudius the Historian, became emperor. Claudius had thoroughly approved of Rufus' history writing and suddenly his career took off as it never had before. He was consul, the first courteous in 500 years. Claudius even awarded him the honour of triumphal insignia for his work on a silver mine in Germania, even though it hadn't turned out to be as profitable as he had hoped. And now he was to govern the whole province of Africa Proconsularis as proconsul. The night before he left Rome for the last time, he had gone to see the emperor to thank him for everything he had done. Don't mention it, Claudius assured him. We survivors m must s stick together. You were never worried about promoting me? asked Rufus. It was the closest he had come to mentioning the rumours and gossip for years. Claudius laughed. P promoting you? he said. Never. You should hear the rumours about me. The ship docked. Rufus smiled at the coin of Claudius in his hand and stepped off onto the shores of Africa. Even though the air smelled of the salt of the sea, he could taste the desert in it as well, just on the edge of his senses. It was once again a spring day, and it was warm, verging on hot. Rufus hopped down onto the beach, walking away from the men unloading all his supplies, and strolled along the shore for a few minutes. The air in front of him shimmered and went hazy. The sand swirled, spinning up into a whirlwind of stone and grit and sea salt, and then there she was. The enormous woman with her dark skin and tight dreads, looking over him in the midday sunshine and smiling. Welcome back, courteous Rufus, she said warmly. I did it, he told her happily. I served three emperors. I survived when everyone else around me was dying. I went to Germania and won a triumph. Suddenly he stopped as he remembered the last part of the prophecy. 
you brought me back here to die? he asked. She laughed. I have not brought you anywhere. You have your own merits and some luck to thank for all of it, she told him. But yes, you will die here, and you can be laid to rest here, at home. And with that, in another swirl of sand and shimmer of mist, she was gone. Rufus bent over double in a sudden pain that disappeared abruptly as it had come and returned shaken to his companions. That evening he wrote to Claudius. Sir, I write once again to thank you for your patronage. I am to die soon. Although my men and my physician insist there is nothing really wrong, the same spirit that kick-started my career has reminded me that it is soon to end. I wish to be buried here in Africa, near the amphitheatre in Thystrus. But please know that I have left all my lands in Rome to you in my will. Do not mourn for me. I am home. The End Hi there. Uh, Welcome back to Creepy Classics. I'm Juliet Harrison. Uh, This is the podcast where I retell and discuss ancient, medieval and early modern ghost stories. Uh... After three episodes set in Iceland in winter last month, I promised uh, that there would be a warmer setting for this month. Um, Of course, the weather has now got quite bad here in the UK to go with it, but there we go. Um, Africa seemed like the place to go. I thought, where's warmer than Iceland? (laughs) African desert. Uh, Adramitum uh, is Sousse in Tunisia, the modern town of Sousse, um, and the capital city Tunis is where Carthage was. Um, Also, unlike uh, the Icelandic story, I have actually been to all three places um, featured in this week, uh, Seuss, Carthage and uh, Rome. This story is told in two different sources. Uh, It's in Tacitus Annals, 11, 20 to 21, and Pliny Letters, Pliny the Younger Letters, uh, Book 7, Letter 27. This is a very famous letter of Pliny's um, because this is the letter that he starts, he writes it to a friend called Sura and he says, he, he asks if Sura believes in ghosts um, and he says, uh, he's not sure but he says he thinks maybe he does and this is his first example. So he gives three stories, um, we will cover them all <laughs> at some point. The most famous is the Haunted House story uh, which I will be covering um, some point later this year. This is the first one. So reading that, reading it in Tacitus, I wouldn't necessarily think of it as a ghost story. This figure sounds much more like a divinity to me, some kind of goddess. Um, But Pliny brings it up quite specifically as an example of a ghost story. So whatever Pliny understands a ghost story is, it certainly includes uh, this story. Um, Pliny seems to like... Curtius Rufus uh, a lot more than Tacitus Um, all of the stuff about his background um, and possibly there being some kind of scandal is all from Tacitus Tacitus also isn't particularly flattering about um, Curtius Rufus's personality either whereas Pliny doesn't seem to have anything good or bad to say about him particularly but he says he's heard this about his experience so presumably um, Pliny and Tacitus both a, a bit later so Um, He's probably heard it from some friend or relative. Now, I should say, neither Curtius Rufus's skin colour nor the colour of the skin of the African spirit or divinity or whatever it is um, are described in either source. Um, They don't describe anybody's skin colour at all. Um, 
I have added the descriptions of skin colour based on um, based on partly creating a story <laughs> as part of it, uh, but also other sources. So um, the description of the woman, um, she's often called the spirit of Africa um, in quite a few translations. I've translated Pliny's text slightly differently, but um, she's certainly an African spiritual divinity or figure of some kind. Um, I've based the physical description of her uh, on Shelley P. Haley's translation of an anonymous Augustan poem called Moritum. Um, so this is not a poem I'd come across. Um, I came across it in uh, Shelley Haley's article. Um, it's a short anonymous poem uh, talking about a woman who embodies her homeland of Africa. So I thought, well, if this poem describes this woman as the embodiment of the idea of Africa, of her homeland of Africa, then it would make sense that this African spirit that Curtius Rufus sees would look like that. Um, so that's uh, entirely based on uh, on Shelley Haley's translation of that poem. And that's where pretty much all the details about the woman come from, apart from her clothing. Uh, I just guessed at the clothing based on images from uh, Roman North Africa. Uh, Curtius Rufus's skin colour isn't referred to at all. Um, what Tacitus does say is that he was rumoured to be the son of a gladiator. So Tacitus has a habit of repeating rumours and then not committing to them himself. <laughs> On Curtius Rufus being the son of a gladiator, he says, uh, I won't promulgate a falsehood and I'm ashamed to investigate the truth. Um, but he does repeat the rumour and it's from Tacitus that that statement of Tiberius's comes from as well um, translated in some cases as I regard Curtius Rufus as the creation of himself or in the Latin um, it seems to me Curtius Rufus was born of himself that would be a more literal translation of the Latin um, I figured that sort of he's his own father got it across a bit better in English um, if he was the son of a gladiator, now this is a rumour that could just have been spread by people who didn't like him, who knows. Uh, if it was true, um, there's a couple of possibilities. One is that his mother had an affair. Um, alternatively, he could be adopted by um, Curtius Rufus Sr. Um, adoption was pretty common in Rome, so it, it could be that he was... Uh, the child of a slave or a very poor man uh, who was adopted um, in the absence of another heir. Either one is possible. The level of scandal that Tacitus seems to imply maybe makes the um, affair with a gladiator more what he's getting at. Uh, there is a poem written sometime later, several decades later, Juvenal's poem Satire 6, complains about women having affairs with gladiators. Um, there was also the skeleton of a rich woman found in the gladiator's barracks in Pompeii, although it's possible that that's just because they were um, running away together or using it as an evacuation centre or something. Juvenal, in the same poem, also uh, makes a snide comment about women getting abortions to avoid giving birth to Ethiopian babies. So... If a Roman does want to describe anybody's skin colour, if they want to describe someone as black, they'll call them Ethiopian or maybe Nubian or Numidian. But that's their kind of... They see it as a, a geographical thing. <laughs> so a, a black person is an Ethiopian. Now, Juvenal's poem is a satire. It's fiction. It's not, um, it's not historical record. And he's also suggesting that the women are getting abortions to avoid it. So 
it's not even suggesting that anybody really was giving birth to mixed-race babies. But it raises the suggestion. So I basically kind of took that. <laughs> I took Tacitus' suggestion that he was the son of a gladiator. And also, for me in writing it as a, as a work of fiction, it was a way of explaining why the spirit appears to him. Because Pliny, he's interested in it. He says, oh, do you believe in ghosts? This is what I heard happened to Curtius Rufus. And he tells the story. And he doesn't express any real curiosity in why this African spirit would appear to this one particular Roman guy. Um, Tacitus doesn't either. Tacitus kind of tells the story as um, this is what raised his hopes because Tacitus is putting a lot more emphasis on this idea that he's unsuitable, that he's not really his father's son. Tacitus says his hopes were raised for a proper political career um, by the appearance of this spirit. Uh, so neither Tacitus nor Pliny have all that much interest in why the African spirit bothered to appear to him. So by making him the son of an Ethiopian gladiator specifically, uh, for my story, I was then able to give this spirit some reason for appearing to him, <laughs> that she's telling him something about his heritage that he doesn't really know or that he's tried to deny. Um, it gave an extra dimension to my story um, to do that. The real Curtius Rufus may or may not be the same person as Quintus Curtius Rufus, uh, who wrote a history of Alexander the Great. Um, most of the histories of Alexander the Great we have are not, not very good or not very contemporary, so every one of them is important. <laughs> and we have at least some of this one from Quintus Curtius Rufus. He might or might not be the same person, to be honest, we can't possibly know. But again, it gave, for me, it gave him a connection with Claudius, who also wrote history. And certainly the real Curtius Rufus's career seems to have taken off under Claudius. Uh, there were a lot of treason trials under Tiberius, uh, first when Sejanus was running things and then after the fall of Sejanus even more. And Caligula was eccentric to say the least. So it's perhaps not surprising that his career did better under Claudius than under his predecessors, but I still thought it was quite a nice way of giving them a kind of shared common interest. And there's other little details I threw in from other places. The Drunken Hercules is a small statue I saw in the Bardo Museum in Tunis when I was on holiday there, um, way back in 2008, and I loved it. Took photos of it. Um, Sejanus, when he was executed uh, after his fall from grace, um, he was subjected to what the Romans called damnatio memoriae, and all images of him were destroyed. So we don't have much in the way of images of Sejanus. But he was played by Patrick Stewart in the 1970s BBC series I, Claudius. So I described him based on Patrick Stewart. Um, I sort of echoed Prince Charles slightly in Tiberius, but I'm not suggesting there is any link between Prince Charles and Tiberius. Um, Tiberius has a deeply terrible reputation, which I'm not going to get into right now. Um, really nasty stuff, so I'm in no way suggesting they're actually similar. My Tiberius I made come across rather nice, but that is what fitted better in this story. Also, a lot of what's said about Tiberius, again, is rumour and gossip, and who knows whether there's any truth to any of it. Um, certainly for this story, from what Tacitus says, he was very supportive of Curtius Rufus, so it made sense to depict him in a much more positive light than he often is. The amphitheatre at Thysdrus, uh, LGM Amphitheatre, was actually built a couple of hundred years later, um, but I'm assuming there might have been an earlier one on the same site. So, 
That's why I mentioned that one. It is a very impressive site if you're ever in Tunisia. Um, the amphitheatre at El Jem is obviously amazing. Fantastic site. I also made reference to the accepting of an infant by the father. So uh, in both Greece and Rome, it was the father's decision whether to raise a child or not. And a lot of the time, children would be abandoned if the parents didn't have enough money. In one case, there's a letter from a father telling his wife to abandon the baby if it's a girl. Don't know how common that was, but <laughs> at least one it happened at least once. Um, they would be left maybe by the dump so someone could pick them up left out in the street, um, just if the parents or the father specifically didn't want to raise them for whatever reason. So if there was some obvious sign, like hair colour, eye colour, skin colour, uh, that suggested the child wasn't his, he could choose to just expose the child. And that would be the father's choice. Um, there would be nothing the mother could do about it, there'd be nothing anyone could do about it. But adoption was very common. So Having said that, if the father, for whatever reason, didn't want to expose the child, he wouldn't be obliged to. Um, and a child with different hair or skin colour wouldn't stand out too massively because adoption was, was fairly common. So there'd be plenty of people around um, who didn't look like their immediate family members. And if the father did just want an heir and wasn't that bothered what his wife had been up to, it seems unlikely, to be fair, for a Roman man to be not bothered about that. Um that's partly why I did also very briefly imply that um, Curtis Rufus Sr. might have been gay. I have no historical basis for that other than thinking through, you know, why would a father accept a child that he was pretty sure wasn't his? And I thought, well, if he's gay, so he knows there aren't going to be any children that are his, then that's one reason that you might accept the child anyway. Uh, so it's entirely up to the father um, after, in Rome, about eight or nine days. Uh, the father would carry the child around the hearth and formally accept the child into the family. So the Roman world was one of a lot of different races and ethnicities. People from all over the Mediterranean and beyond are running around all over the place in the Roman Empire, basically. Um, by the first century CE, the Roman Empire stretched from Britain to Syria. It included the entire Mediterranean coast. It crossed Europe, Asia and Africa. Individual towns or larger geographic areas would be granted Roman citizenship at various points. And then later on in 212 CE, the Emperor Caracalla granted citizenship to all free inhabitants of the empire. And freed slaves could become Roman citizens as well. You've also got soldiers in the army, both citizens and non-citizen auxiliary soldiers who are in areas that have been conquered by Rome that haven't yet got citizenship. And they were moved all around the empire. They often settled down and later married women from places where they were posted. So you've got loads of people of different races and ethnicities living all over the place. <laughs> if they've moved, if they've been transported as a slave and then freed, if they've been a soldier who's been posted somewhere miles from where they were born, or even if they've just been trading uh, across the Mediterranean. And you've also got loads of people that we would call mixed race, whether that's... Um, former owners and slaves um not something we would approve of as a relationship now but certainly something that happened people who were slaves together soldiers and women that they settled down with um or as i say just people trading and moving around and that includes the third century emperor septimius severus whose ancestry was mixed italian and punic um so punic was north african culture it may not have been particularly dark-skinned but it was certainly an african um people so Romans included people from numerous different ethnic and racial backgrounds across three continents. 
And just the presence of somebody dark-skinned wouldn't attract attention. In my story, Rufus's problem is that he has a light-skinned family. So the problem is not his skin colour itself. And if he went somewhere far away from his family, no one would be bothered. The problem is that he's from a, a family. I, I've made him come from a family where everybody's quite pale-skinned, so he stands out. <clears throat> now, that's not to say that racism didn't exist in the ancient world. Um, it did. Uh, sadly, it exists everywhere. It was just in some ways different um, to what we might be familiar with, in other ways similar. The ancients had prejudices and preconceptions about people based on geographical origins, skin colour, hair colour. Um, you can really tell that the, the Romans and the Greeks, they're living in what they consider is the centre of the world. The Greeks considered Delphi the, the belly button of the, the earth. They're aware, obviously, of people to the east, um, but a lot of their world is kind of the Mediterranean in the middle, and then you've got the barbarians in the north, and then you've got the Ethiopians in the south. Uh, so the Roman architect Vitruvius uh, suggested that people from hot, dry climates, such as Ethiopians, are long-lived and healthy, dark-skinned because they're sunburned, <laughs> which obviously is not true, uh, intelligent, but cowardly because they don't have enough blood to spare, the heat dries it up, Germans from the north, on the other hand, red hair, pale because of the cold, dim-witted but courageous. Uh, they have more blood and they don't worry about losing it in a fight. That, that gives you an idea of Greco-Roman ideas about um, both geographic, uh, geography, geographic origin and ethnicity. Um, so you can see there's, there's racism going both ways. They are in in the middle and they they consider themselves perfect this is where you need to start really with greek and roman attitudes to anything is that they consider themselves perfect so anything that isn't them is obviously flawed in some way so the pale red-headed germans and i realize uh, i described the rufus family as redheads because of the, the name rufus means red so it might mean ruddy complexion or it might mean red hair and i just went with red hair uh, but generally speaking yes germans are pale and red-headed um, and brave but stupid. <laughs> Ethiopians are dark-skinned and intelligent but cowardly. So you can see they see them as opposites. And this goes all the way back to the Greek historian Herodotus, uh, who tended to describe the whole world in terms of opposites. You know, you've got this up here in the north and this opposite down here in the south. Roman writers don't always describe skin colour, as I mentioned. The, not only is Curtius Rufus skin colour not described, but nor is the African spirit. Um... They might describe somebody as Ethiopian if they were talking about somebody very dark-skinned. They might describe them as Ethiopian or Numidian or Nubian. But what they don't have is anything equivalent um, to 20th century America's one-drop rule. Um, you know, there, there's no idea, they don't have any sense that if you have an Ethiopian ancestor a couple of generations back, that makes you Ethiopian. No, that, that wouldn't be relevant to them. The main issue for Curtius Rufus in, in reality was definitely the problem of possible illegitimacy and lower class origins. So if he was adopted, then the problem would have been sheer lower class origins. You know, oh, he's been adopted, but he's the son of a slave. Um, if the rumour was that his mother had had an affair, then that's even worse because that suggests illegitimacy um, that he is. And I, I used uh, a word, not, the, not a nice word at all, <laughs> bastard in the story, but just to get across um, that sense, which is probably more familiar, that prejudice against people born outside of marriage. So I think for the real Curtius Rufus, it was, it was this problem of illegitimacy and 
low origins, uh, whatever his race was, which, as I say, I have no idea. So the, the African spirit, or spirit of Africa, as she is called in some translations, Tacitus and Pliny both describe the woman primarily as just superhuman. So she's of enormous superhuman size. This is uh, the way gods and goddesses are often described. Um, neither of them give much more detail than that. Pliny does say that she's also very beautiful. Uh, Tacitus says nothing else at all. Um, so beyond the size and the beauty, uh, the rest of it I needed to um, create. In Tacitus, it's all very Scottish play. It's all kind of, hail Rufus, who will be consul hereafter. Uh, Pliny calls her an African prinuntius, which means omen, or one of the translations that the dictionary gives, which I rather liked, was beacon light. And I thought, well, that sounds nice and poetic. It's a bit more interesting than just, I am an African omen. Um, but that's basically what Pliny's saying she is. Um, I've seen some translations and some sources talk about her as a genius of Africa, or Genius or genius is the divine aspect of a human soul. And interestingly, in Roman North Africa, the genius of the woman of the household, um, or the Uno, sometimes was the woman's version, uh, was sometimes worshipped alongside the genius of the male. Um, in other parts of the Roman world, it tended to be the, the father of the household whose genius might be worshipped in household religion. Um, Roman North Africa seems to have involved women in religious rituals in some ways more than other parts of the Roman world. I've not been able to do much research in this yet, but there's a couple of things quite interesting, so I want to look into that a bit more, actually. Um, I have to say, the Pliny text, just she's just an omen. Um, Pliny and Tacitus really seem mostly interested in her as simply a, a walking, talking prophecy. Um, but I sort of extrapolated from that, as I say, using the the poem about the the woman who embodied Africa to expand on it a bit. And I've expanded quite a lot on um, the prophecy that she gives in Pliny and Tacitus. Um, both of these texts, it's just a tiny little paragraph. So I've expanded on them a lot. So if you want to read these sources for yourself, uh, The Letters of the Younger Pliny is available in Penguin Classics, translated by Betty Radis. Um, Tastus Annals is available at the Lacus Curtius Gateway to Ancient Rome website, translated by Jay Jackson. Uh, you can also read the Latin on perseus.tufts.edu, um, which is where I got the, the Latin versions. Uh, Shelley Haley's translation of the Augustan poem is in her article, Black Feminist Thought and Classics, Remembering, Reclaiming, Reempowering, which is in a book called Feminist Theory and the Classics edited by Nancy Sorkin, Rabinowitz and Amy Rieschlantz um, from 1993. I first read it years ago. It's a really, really good article. Um, and I also got the Vitruvius quote uh, from Rebecca Futo Kennedy's article, Why I Teach About Race and Ethnicity in the Classical World. Uh, that's in the online journal Idolon from September 11th, 2017. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, a little bit of a trip to slightly warmer climes than last time. <laughs> I haven't made up my mind what I'm going to look at next month, so I haven't got an exciting trailer for next month lined up. Um, but suffice to say, it will be something thrilling, <laughs> I'm sure. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. Newman University.